The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. LinkedIn presents. We are wired to flourish. We each enter the world with something beautiful that will grow into the best version of itself if, and this is key, if it receives the right conditions to do so. For the seed, the right conditions are the soil and the sunlight. For the caterpillar, it is the chrysalis. And for human beings, it is the strength of our relationships given we are the most social species to exist. Happy Friday, everyone. This is the Next Big Idea Daily. I'm your host, Michael Kovnett, and I've got a question for you. Are you a people pleaser? Sometimes we find ourselves doing more to please others than we do to take care of ourselves. And though we can all fall victim to people-pleasing, according to author Homera Kabir, it's a tendency that's especially common among women. Homera is the founder of Her Becoming, an enterprise dedicated to women's empowerment and leadership, and her writing has been published in Forbes, Thrive Global, The Huffington Post, and more. Her new book is called Goodbye Perfect, How to Stop Pleasing, Proving, and Pushing for Others and Live for Yourself. And she joins us now to share a few of her big ideas. Functioning is not the same as flourishing. Functioning is about showing up. It's about raising the kids, performing your duties, getting through the day-to-day with a certain level of resilience. Most of us do that. Flourishing is different. It's about getting out of bed with a spring to your feet because you're drawn by a deeper relationship with life. Flourishing is about joy, ease, and purpose, and about growing into the best version of yourself. Not a lot of us are flourishing. Some of us can feel the angst of it, while others are so involved in their day-to-day functioning that they don't even have the time to think about it. When I recovered from my eating disorder after a near 10-year struggle, I didn't find myself flourishing. My life was good on the outside, but every so often I would get this gnawing feeling that something was missing. I would think back to my eating disorder days and wonder whether I had fought the biggest battle of my life for this. I knew there was something more I was here to do. And it wasn't just me. Many of my coaching clients spoke about the same disconnect with their lives. Like me, they were waiting for their real lives to begin and hoping I'll be able to guide them toward it. These were competent, conscientious, and ambitious women. They were the star performers, the super moms, the ones who got everything done and were there for everyone. They weren't just functioning. They were high-functioning, but by and large, they were also stressed, overwhelmed, and burnt out, always pushing themselves to meet often unreasonable expectations and their own harshest critics when they couldn't do so. I could so relate to their experience. I could so relate to the feeling of always trying harder and still not getting far, like pushing a boulder up a mountain. And all I had as solutions was more self-care, more boundary setting, more discernment, and less perfection and control. The problem was that they already knew this. They were well aware of the patterns that were keeping them stuck or unhappy and what to do about it. But taking action was terribly hard despite the knowledge because the moment of truth was rife with intense emotions. It was easier to justify not taking action. And even when they did take action, it wasn't hugely helpful because of the guilt or self-doubt that followed. So I went back to school to do a master's in positive psychology, which is the science of flourishing. 
If traditional psychology helps us move from languishing to functioning, as it helped me recover from the eating disorder, positive psychology promises a path from functioning to flourishing and to reaching the highest levels of our potential. We are wired to flourish. In fact, every living organism from the seed to the caterpillar has the same wiring. It's called entelechy, a concept that was first introduced by Aristotle to describe the potential in an acorn to actualize into an oak tree. Similarly, we each enter the world with something beautiful that will grow into the best version of itself if, and this is key, if it receives the right conditions to do so. For the seed, the right conditions are the soil and the sunlight. For the caterpillar, it is the chrysalis. And for human beings, it is the strength of our relationships given we are the most social species to exist. And most important of these relationships is the one we have with our primary caregivers in the very early years of life because that's when we form the mental frameworks that become our way of perceiving and thus experiencing the world. Secure attachment, where caregivers are not only present, attuned, and non-judgmental, they're also aware and encouraging of our authentic way of being in the world, provides the most solid ground for flourishing because it instills in us a healthy sense of self-worth. This allows us to pursue heartfelt goals with joy and grit, and a certain grace when things don't go our way because our worth isn't on the line. Paul Gilbert, who has won the Order of the British Empire for his work on compassion, calls this secure striving because our pursuits are underpinned by a sense of inner security. Contrast this with insecure striving where we experience anxiety, social comparison, shame and bouts of unhappiness in the pursuit of should goals that are based on what others or what society values and rewards. The pandemics of anxiety, loneliness, depression, and purposelessness are a sign that insecure striving is an all-too-common reality. That is, most of us do not get the right conditions to flourish. Research on attachment styles shows that most of us do not grow up with secure attachment, largely because it's a tall order that nature places on caregivers, especially in a world that's so stressful and chaotic. Despite a caregiver's best efforts, most of us grow up in homes with some praise and some criticism, some moments of connection and some of loneliness or feeling misunderstood. This mixed bag isn't limited to our very early years either. There are other factors that affect attachment style that I write about in the book like personality, the challenges we face, and especially the world we live in that never fails to remind us of what's lacking in us and around us in subtle and not-so-subtle ways. When we don't feel loved and seen for who we are, we try to become someone else to get the attention and appreciation we need. My eating disorder began in Senegal in West Africa when my father was posted there as a diplomat and I felt a complete stranger because of reasons I write about in the book. The focus on losing weight was a desperate attempt to matter, to be seen and appreciated for something that others valued. Of the few options, my body was the only thing I could control, until I couldn't. Before long, the eating disorder had taken a life of its own. The patterns of behavior I engaged in during that time are no different to the patterns of perfection, pleasing, proving, and constant performing that billions of us engage in. Essentially, they are all the masks we wear to feel we are worthy of being loved or seen by doing the things that make us so. 
In Goodbye Perfect, I describe six common masks that result from insecure attachment. You may find that you relate to many of them to varying degrees, not because anything's wrong with you, but because the beliefs underpinning the masks are often unknown to you. They live in the vast wilderness of the implicit and subconscious world because they formed at a time when you hadn't fully developed the cognitive capacity to make sense of things. When a situation touches upon a belief, you have no control over your emotional reaction. It is visceral and automatic, honed over millennia to keep you safe. It's that immobilizing self-doubt you feel before something important, even when you know you have what it takes to do it well. Or that warm wash of shame over something so small and insignificant that you won't think twice about it if someone else did it. Unless we address the emotion first, we'll react to it because emotions drive action. Sometimes we react so fast that we don't even know we experienced an emotion. So strong is the self-protection mechanism. Understanding this is critical because it explains why we continue to do the things we know are getting in the way of our joy or growth. Or why we fall back into old patterns, especially when we face challenges. We're protecting ourselves, and protecting and flourishing aren't exactly bedmates. We can create the conditions to flourish. When I began my research on flourishing, I wanted to understand the factors that enabled it. Soon, however, the research turned to confidence because I found that there are two types of high confidence in the scientific literature developed by the late Michael Kernis at the University of Georgia. One is called Optimal confidence or optimal self-esteem that is best described as authenticity and it does enable flourishing. The other is called fragile self-esteem that is dependent on external validation such as success or approval and praise and even social media likes and comments in this virtual world we live in. And fragile confidence is a yo-yoing emotional journey of self-protective behaviors that keep us stuck and shortchange our potential. And studies on adult development by Professor Robert Kagan at Harvard University show that up to 70% of college-educated adults do indeed feel stuck. What I also learned, and this has been my greatest insight and now my mantra and message in the world, is that the only difference between fragile confidence and optimal confidence is a psychological construct called global self-esteem that reflects a relationship of unconditional love and positive regard toward ourselves. Needless to say, this is the natural byproduct of secure attachment because our relationship with ourselves is a reflection of the relationship we had with our caregivers in those early years of life. As such, most of us have our inner work cut out for us, and our areas of struggle point us to it. These are the areas where we have to bring love and compassion, acceptance and forgiveness, encouragement and excitement like a secure attachment figure would do. I remember the time I was pregnant with my twins when literally out of nowhere, I went into active labor at 22 weeks. I was rushed to the hospital where the doctors told us that the chances of survival of both babies were 0.6%. My world was pulled from beneath me and my mind fired at a million miles an hour. What did I do wrong? Why was this happening to us? The more I tried to make sense of things, the more my emotions ran the show and delivery was all but certain. But I guess the universe had other plans and it pointed me to what I needed to do. During the three months that I held my babies in until they were ready to come out safely, 
I stood at the gates of my mind like an angel sent from heaven, being gentle with myself, cheering myself on multiple times a day, and refusing to engage with the inner critic that had a lot to say. The doctors called me their miracle patient, but there was nothing more miraculous I did than what we're all capable of doing when we stand by our own sides in unconditional love and non-judgment. We find the strength and wisdom within to do the right thing. The importance of self-compassion cannot be overemphasized in this new reality where we can do everything right and still end up with a lean on the house, adult kids living in the basement, or a war or pandemic that throws our plans and aspirations into disarray. All great daring begins from within. This isn't my quote. It's from the writer Eudora Welty. I love it so much because it's a beautiful expression of my research. Optimal confidence is a bottom-up approach to confidence building that begins with embracing our inherent self-worth. And yet, it's really the approach taken in our efforts to help people build their confidence. The general approach is based on the view that taking action builds confidence, also known as the top-down approach. And yet we all know, or are, the competent, successful, qualified people who have taken risks and done great things, but continue to struggle with self-doubt and the imposter syndrome despite taking action again and again. This top-down approach is also common in leadership development because it is the overarching approach we have to life itself. In Greek philosophy, it's described as the patriarchal approach that's based on Puritan values of right and wrong. The matriarchal approach is bottom-up in nature because it begins with the truth of what is. Authenticity, interconnectedness, dreams and aspirations, but also fears, shame and inhibitions. Both approaches feed off each other, but the work always begins within. Without embracing the truth of what is, a top-down approach becomes tyrannical in nature, whether the tyranny is toward ourselves in the form of an overly vocal inner critic or toward others, as in narcissistic behaviors and wanting power over others. It's about fixing and rejecting instead of using what's already beautiful to make what's not better. We cannot work on our darkness if we aren't connected to our brightness. Authenticity is the bedrock of flourishing. Thank you, Homera. All right, everyone, that's it for the week. Sign up for my newsletter using the link in the episode notes, and then I'll send you a weekly summary of the latest ideas from nonfiction right to your inbox. You can also sign up for the free newsletter by going to LinkedIn and searching for the next big idea. This week's episodes were written by me, Michael Kavnat, and edited by Kayla Bissinger. The Next Big Idea Daily is part of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. We'll be back Monday with some more big ideas.